Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast, your go-to source for insights and strategies in the HVAC, plumbing, and roofing industries. I'm Corey Barrier, here to guide you through transformative approaches to business and mindset. Each episode will explore unique methods, focusing on identifying and addressing the core challenges in your field. Our goal is to equip you and your team with practical solutions that foster growth and success. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or you're a longtime listener, get ready to dive into a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Let's begin our journey to success together. This is the successful life. It's Corey Barrier. Yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your turn. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, two. Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast. I am your host, Corey Barrier, and I'm here with Jarek Robbins. What's up, Jarek? How are you? Corey, thank you for having me, sir. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, uh, we'll share some value with you here that'll be worth, worth the time you invest in this. I would be pretty shocked if you didn't. I would be pretty shocked if you didn't. I think value is all that comes out of your mouth. <laughs> so Hopefully. Um, hopefully. Yeah. So, Jarek, so I, you know, the the whole idea of Successful Life Podcast is really for you to walk the audience through what it was like, you know, growing up, what it was like in school, what it was like after school, and what has made you the person that you are today. Sure. Um, so, to rewind all the way back to school, it, it, it was interesting. I... I struggled in school when I was really, really young. Um, I remember, and, and there are things that I don't reflect a lot on because it's not the things that I, I focus on. But if I looked back all the way into school, if I remember all the way back in third grade, I had a teacher who was the same height as me. She was a wonderful teacher. I went to a very small school when I was really young for pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, first, second, third grade. Uh, I think my class size was like 12 people. It was oh, a private Catholic school. We went to church every morning and said our prayers before we went to class. Um, and, and I struggled with school. The very first time they dropped me off at school, I literally ran after the car and was quick enough to catch the car, jump on the bumper. And I was sitting on the bumper on my grandma's Cadillac as she was driving away because I was not being left at school. <laughs> and, and so I, I didn't necessarily love going to school in the beginning. Um, I remember fast forward all the way to third grade. They they thought I had trouble reading, which I did. I, my eyes weren't tracking properly. So I remember I had to have an after-school session with the teacher where I put these glasses on that had like a million little pinholes in them. Um, and then I used a ruler and I went line by line to practice reading from a book. Um, and it was interesting. And so I had to learn how to read and get better at reading. And I wasn't very good at that in the beginning. Fast forward, I remember I transferred to public school in fourth or fifth grade. And I remember my best friend's mom, who was my teacher, we had a split class. So we had two teachers and she was one of the teachers. I remember her having a talk with my mom saying, hey, I think he might be put in like the special education class because, uh, you know, I, I think he, he's not picking it up as fast as the other kids. 
And I remember hearing that my mom being adamant of like, no, he can do it. Just let him stay where he's at. And like, don't, don't put him anywhere. Like I'll work with him, but let him do it. And I remember, you know, through those first so many years, I was kind of a C and D student. I was not a, a, you know, the best in class. I wasn't the best and brightest of any sort. Um, I had a lot of trouble in math. I had a lot of trouble in languages. I had a lot of trouble science. Somehow I got, <laughs> I remember I aced the science, I won the science fair and I, I aced my science test and got like the highest grade in the class. I was like, oh, I'm a scientist, uh, maybe. <laughs> um, but other things I just struggled with. History I loved, math I really struggled with. I remember I used to get in fights with the teacher because I just couldn't get it. And, and he was a German guy who was like, figure it out. And I was like, ah, don't yell at me. And, it, and so that didn't work out too well. Um, and it was a struggle. So I remember fast forward, right in, when I got into high school, I was still probably a B and C student as of this point, first year of high school. And there, there was something that kind of changed that experience. And it was, I, I sat down and I listened to this tape set my dad had put together. And my two cents at 14 years old was, let's see if it works. <laughs> Everyone else says it works. All these people are like, he's amazing. This changed my life. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's see if it works. Like, I'm literally just going to put it in. I'm going to listen to it. And I'm going to do what it says. And I'm going to see what happens. Did you ask him for the tapes or did he suggest you listen to the tapes? No, I, I asked him for them. I'm like, okay. can I get those? And, and he's like, sure. And he gave them to me. And I was like, I'm going I'm to listen to them and see if it works for me. You know, it might work for someone else, but I don't know if it works for me. Sure. Not everything works for everybody. And so I put it in, I listened, and I did what it said. It was like, you know, have this morning routine. You get up and go out and do your hour of power and do this breathing stuff. So like, okay, cool. So I was a freshman in high school, and I'd get up. I had practice, football practice. I had to be on the field at 6 a.m. So I'd get up at like 4.50, and I'd, I'd go out into the neighborhood, you know, at the brisk of dawn, and I'd be doing my walking around the neighborhood, doing my breathing and doing my visualization and my affirmations and all this stuff. And then I, I set goals and I came up with some of the stuff I couldn't do at 14 years old. Like I didn't have financial business goals at the time, but I was like, Oh, I can set a, a grade goal. I could try to go from B's and C's to like A's and B's and see if I could nudge it up. Um, and, and I just, you know, I could set a health goal. I could try to get healthy. So I started eating just like the program said and cut out a lot of the meat and pizza and soda and everything else that I was doing at the time. Sure. And, and things changed. Um, you know, over the next couple of years, I went from a B and C and D student to a straight A student. I was like, well, that was cool. Like, even if that's all that happened, that was, you know, cool enough. Um, I, I went from, I remember when I was in junior high, I would eat an, an appetite like a beast. So I'd eat an extra large cheese pizza on a Friday night by myself. And, and my friend would come over and we'd eat them together. He'd eat a whole pizza. I'd eat a whole pizza. And then, you know, I cut that out and started eating salads and fish and stuff like this. And all of a sudden I lost weight. Um, I started, I went and ran a marathon. I was like, well, that was cool. Uh, I was like, what else could I do? I joined sports. I played football, basketball, wrestling, um, polo, ton of stuff. Like I just started becoming an athlete and that kind of changed my identity in the process of who I was and what was going on. My grades got better. And as all these things started to happen, I was like, wow, a little bit more confident in who I was. Uh, fast forward, 
applied to colleges. That was interesting. I only applied to three. Um, it was funny. Two of them said yes, which was kind of cool. Cornell accepted me and I was like, well, that's cool. Never been to New York, but I figured Cornell sounded like a cool school and they had a polo team. So that might work out. Uh, UC Boulder accepted me and I was like, well, that's cool. I love Colorado. That could be neat. And then the university of San Diego, uh, declined me. And for some reason I was like, Hmm, what the heck? So I drove down there and I was like, why did you guys decline me? And they're like, well, you know, just due to reasons, blah, 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 you've been declined. I was like, for some reason, I felt like I needed to go to the University of San Diego at that point. So <laughs> we, what we can't uh, have, right? <laughs> I guess at that stage of life. And so I, I literally decided to drive to the admissions office every single day for the next like four or five weeks. And I literally went there every single day and was like, hey, how can I get in? Like, do I have to write another letter? Do you need an endorsement from somebody? Do you, do I need to, what do I need to do? Like, do I need to, what, what? And they're like, sorry, we're full. And then after like the seventh or eighth or 10th day, they, one of the admissions guys pulled me aside. And he's like, here's the thing. We've already submitted all the approvals for people who've been accepted. If any of them don't accept it, there's a second round of approvals that comes up at this further date. You know, at that time, we might be able to get you in but you know, here's the stuff we need. So I literally just kept calling him and showing up every day until that date came and I got accepted. And they were like, here, you're accepted in this way. I was like, what? Rat. That was cool. And, and what was kind of weird is in college, the same thing happened. It was a little bit of a struggle for me. I, I had some A's and B's classes that I was really good at. And then a couple classes just kicked my butt. I remember I had to take over biopsychology. So as thought as good as I was at science when I was in, you know, junior high and high school, science kicked my face in in college. It was difficult, and just the biology of the human body was. I was trying to remember all the bits and pieces. Now, what's wild is you fast forward. Graduate, you know, well, a couple of things happened during the school years that were very interesting. One, I took a semester abroad, and instead of going to one city or one country. I did semester at sea, which took me in one semester on a ship all the way around the world. Holy so we cow. did 10 countries in 100 days, 110 days. And we got to go and experience the country. We, what, it, what it, they do is they, when you're at sea, you have A, B, A, B. So there's no weekends. It's just you go to school every day, A, B, A, B, A, B. Then when you get to port, uh, you're no, you don't have classes for the seven days or 10 days you're in port. So then you just have seven days to go explore a country. And they give you assignments. So they're like, oh, if you're in social psychology, go to a bar or restaurant and observe how people interact with each other in the following ways. And so you have to go sit there and like watch people and take notes on how what you observe in the way people interact with each other in that country or in this city or in this kind of culture, which is very cool. Yeah, what a short, I mean, it's 100, 110 days, but what a short amount of time to accomplish so much. So it's very cool. It's very cool. It's life-changing yeah. experience. Most people, um, they, they've been doing it for many, many years, I think over 50 years now, and they have people come on board and they say, you know, when you board the ship, you're a student from your country. When you return home, you're a citizen of the world, meaning you now have an experience of different cultures in different ways that very few humans on earth will ever get to experience in their life. And it just opens your mind and changes your entire perspective about life. Uh, I remember I wrote in my book when I got to South Africa, we went to one of the, the shanty towns 
and we took a tour and, and they showed us how at one point in history, every Friday, a bulldozer would come through town and mow everyone's houses down because they were in the poor part of the community. They didn't want living that way. And I was like, wow, that would suck. Every Friday, your house gets bulldozed <laughs> and they rebuild it and live there the next week. It was crazy. And, and, you know, there was segregation and apartheid and all kinds of stuff going on. There was horrible down there. One thing that was really interesting, they gave us a tour of this, like a building and you walk into the building and there was literally nothing there except for this black soot, like going up the wall where there was an open fire where someone cooked some food last night. That, you know, that's interesting. They opened one of the doors and you looked inside a room and the room's about as big as a dorm room with like two single beds in it. The interesting part was they said, this is a two family room. So on each of the single beds in this room, five people live on each bed. They're like, wow, that's really small. There's no closets. There was just like nails on the wall and the random nails on the wall had like two hangers and like, you know, a pair of pants or a shirt. Like those were people's closets, like one nail, two hangers, a couple of shirts, one pair of pants. They're like, interesting. And then you looked under the bed and it had like their belongings. Their whole life was smashed on a half of a dorm room. And then there was like a little tiny fridge and a little hot pot that everyone in the room used. That was the whole room. Ten people. You had ten people living in a room like that. So mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, whoever, and the other family too. They're like, wow, that's interesting. And that looked really rough. And then we went outside and one guy gave us a tour of his house. And it was four tin, like tin walls. And you opened it. It was pitch black inside in the middle of the day because there was no light, no windows. And then there was a bed and like a little sink and then a bucket that he used the water to pour into the sink to kind of do his stuff and like a broken piece of glass for a mirror. And that was the whole house. You're like, wow. I didn't know people lived like this. Uh-uh. And, and, and I had heard about it, but I'd never seen it, never experienced it, never had a tangible experience with it. And to stand there and go, huh, what would life be like if – that was my life. Like life would be interesting. And then we made it to, you know, in China, we saw four generations of family living in a two bedroom apartment. And we're like, wow, that's a lot of people in a little bit of space. And, but they seem to be doing well and they're happy. We got to Vietnam. That was cool. I went and volunteered for a week and taught English at a school. And in return for teaching English, they gave us a mat at the school to sleep on in one of the rooms at night. And then they gave us two meals a day. So we traded English in return for a place to stay and two meals a day. I was like, well, that's a cool trade. That's a neat thing to know. You can take that around the world and share with people and they find it valuable enough to trade you a place to live and, and some food if you need it. I mean, that's kind of cool to know that exists. Um, the one that really changed my life and just opened my heart in a different way was when I got to East Africa. I remember we got to Tanzania and just kind of driving and seeing the cities were amazing. The cities are hustling, bustling, feels like home, just different way. But when you got out to the villages and the farmlands, I remember seeing people living in like mud huts. And I just scratched my head. I didn't know people ever, like in the history books, I remember sure. seeing like a mud hut, but I, I didn't think at this point in history, people lived in mud huts. Mm-mm. And I went and stopped by some of the villages and it's just like a little circle with, with thatch leaves kind of stuff on the roof and then mud walls. And, and there's a little like curtain door and you poke your head in and it has sticks thatched together that hold up a little cot and a little cot. And that's the whole house. I was like, wow, that's crazy. Now, how thick was the mud? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I mean, it's like a mud brick. 
So they, okay. they make it in, it's not a brick, but it's mud in the sure. form of like, you know, a brick. Okay. It's kind of like, you know, if you go all the way back to how the pilgrims would make house with uh, horse plaster back in the day, where it's horse hair plaster mixed in, horse hair mixed in with the plaster for some type of insulation. So if you take that, and that's how they used to make houses, like gingerbread houses way back in the day in the northeast of the U.S., that except for they're using mud and clay as the brick type of material. Sure. Um, and then instead of like actual bricks, it's just one solid sheet of mud that goes up. And so that it, it works as a house. Like um, we later learned. So what, what ended up happening was I got there. I was like, wow. And I just met some of these people and like they were happy. They seemed to have a good life. They seemed to enjoy life. And I remember at that moment contemplating and thinking back to going to a private school in San Diego for college at the time where some of these kids were given a lot. And, and I remember there was a kid who had a Ferrari in my class. And I was like, well, that's crazy. Like, how'd that happen? Um, there was kids driving BMWs and had all kinds of clothes and had budgets and could go on ski trips. And I remember thinking like, this is crazy. People can do all this stuff. And then at this point in my life, took a trip halfway around the world, standing in a village, seeing no electricity, no running water, no toilets, mud huts, whole house is a little tiny circle that's no bigger than like, draw a circle around you, that's your whole house. And thinking, wow, this is different. Thinking back to the uncertainty, the, the self-doubt, the lack of, of, of happiness or joy that existed in a lot of the people back home. And then watching someone who lives in this hut just be happy as heck every day, just waking up and being alive. That blows my mind, dude. That blows my mind. And the key with that is thinking, how did they find such joy in just being alive? And that was something that kind of struck a chord in me. I would like to find that amount of joy in just being alive. Sure. Like, that's cool. If I could somehow catch some of that, my goodness, I feel like life would be cooler. Yeah. And, and partially because those feelings back home, I remember through college having feelings of uncertainty of who I was. This is, these are normal things people battle with at that stage or figure out at that stage of life. Who am I? Um, not feeling very confident sometimes in who I was and what I was all about. Not quite knowing what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. Um, you know, watching other people go after more and more stuff. When I was all the way in high school, I remember a music video that caught my attention. I thought was the coolest thing in the world was hypnotized by Puff Daddy and Biggie Smalls. And I remember watching the video and seeing all this stuff, helicopters, yachts, money, girls, jackets, you know, glasses, cars, stuff. And thinking, man, if I can get some of that stuff, my life would be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, and a lot of, you know, growing up, I had a lot of stuff. I wanted more stuff. I thought if I could get the outfit and the shoes and the watch and, and the stuff and the car, man, everything would be amazing. Um, I had a father who worked really hard, who started off homeless and has done extremely well business-wise throughout his life. And so I had access that he wanted to give me a lot of the stuff he didn't have growing up. So as a kid, I had a lot of stuff. And sure. I remember at this point being in that village on the other side of the world and just standing there thinking, wow, these people don't have a lot of stuff, but my God, they have a lot of happiness. And just thinking, huh, 
I wonder if I could help in any way around here. Because as much as they're happy, there's also, you know, they're, they're kind of lacking some resources, like water and food. <laughs> I was like, well, that, that's tricky. And, and I was like, I wonder if I could help. So I, I finished the trip, got home. And I remember coming back to school and my friends being like, oh, how was it? How was your trip abroad? And I talked to other kids who studied abroad and they're like, oh, partying in Madrid was amazing. Like the nightclubs are so cool and we can drink alcohol over there. And it was like, oh, we partied in Spain. And for me, it wasn't that. It was like, huh, wow, I, I can't stop thinking about how people are living around the world. So I remember coming home, sitting down and like going to hang out with one of my friends at the coffee shop on campus. And I remember they were complaining because they missed an episode of a TV show and then, you know, they couldn't get a new pair of Ugg boots because they already bought a pair of Ugg boots last semester or something and their mom wouldn't give them the money. And they were just so upset about it. And it was, ugh, I'd be devastated to have to wear the same ones kind of stuff. And I remember just sitting there shaking my head thinking, I don't think I need to be here right now. Like, I, I think I need to go back to that place where all those people were and, and do something about it. And so I did. I went home and I just Googled volunteer organizations. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to find something I can do to go help. Like, I don't know if it's teaching English or volunteering at the hospital or the orphanage or something. And I remember I looked at all the categories. And, and one of the categories on one of these organizations I pulled up was um, organic farming. I'm like, well, that's cool. I like the earth. My grandpa's, you know, done farming at, at his house. He had like 120 something fruit trees growing up. So I remember always being in the yard with him. It was kind of nice. I'm like, yeah, why not? I could learn that. So I signed up, got approved, and then a couple of weeks later, I packed my bag, jumped on a plane, flew to London, flew to Uganda, and we had a crash course when we first arrived where we learned all the key things necessary that we needed to take into the villages and help the local farmers learn to help bring their crop and land back to life. Um, someone had come in and, and sold them a pesticide that was 11 years illegal in both the US and the UK, because it poisons the land, kills the crop, and, and you know, causes the people to get sick. But someone thought it was a good idea to fly to Africa and sell it to farmers there to get and, rid of it. And because they were uneducated about it, they bought it. This episode of the Successful Life Podcast is brought to you by House Call Pro. Whether you're looking to streamline your operations, reduce paperwork, or boost revenue, Housecall Pro is your all-in-one business solution. Transform your business today with essential tools and support designed to drive efficiency and deliver exceptional customer service. To learn more, click the link in the show notes. Yeah, well, they just had a good sales pitch. This yeah. will get rid of the bugs. Damn. <laughs> and because they didn't know it was illegal in the U.S. and the U.K., and it wasn't illegal in Uganda. So, right. you know, they purchased all this pesticide from these guys and they went and killed all their crops. And it literally killed all the coffee plants, which was their big business in that town. It poisoned the soil, jacked up their economy and caused the villages to be kind of a desolate village. And so we were sent there to help them get the land going again. And they taught us organic farming techniques of how to mix peppers with certain other plants to cause, you know, to fend off against certain bugs. Um, for the people living in the huts, smoke inhalation was a big safety issue and possibly catching the house on fire kind of thing. So they taught us how to create kitchen stoves out of mud, which was really cool. So we take that same mud they make the, the walls with 
we mix it up and then we would actually craft a stove out of it. Like we'd hand build a mud stove on the ground. Then we'd build a mud chimney up the side and poke it out the side of the house. And all of a sudden we created a cooking stove. They can use inside of a mud hut, you know, made out of clay and mud, which so, is so cool. So just like, so is it kind of, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is like a kiln, but you know, a kiln, I guess, really cooks clay slash what you know have, you know how the bowls i'm sure you've yeah. gone so it would there. look like that basically okay we, we would take a pot we'd flip the pot upside down and then we put the pot down and we build the mud around the pot then you'd flip it over and ideally you use the top of the pot which has the little edge that's wider than the bottom to create the circle so that when you put the pot on it it won't fall through got it interesting and and yeah, so there's a whole way you design it. And it was really cool. It was a little tiny stove, just as big as a computer. And then you put the pot on it, put the fire inside, light the fire, and it cooks the food. And then the smoke goes out the chimney. So little stuff like that we learned how to do. And then it was our job. We got dropped off in a village. And it was our job. We were put in little groups of four. There was two overseas volunteers, a male and a female, and two local volunteers who were from the country, a male and a female. And then we'd go out and help. So we'd just walk around all day. Um, kind of like the missionaries <laughs> right? or uh, the, I forget what it's called. Jehovah witness. Jehovah's witness. The, the young Mormons that go on their, I think it's quest or. I don't know the her. name, but, but they, yeah. they, for two years they go door knocking basically. And right. So we, we were the, that version of me and my group in Uganda door knocking or farm knocking on people's farms, telling them we're here to help them with their farm. <laughs> so, wow. you know, I was there. It was supposed to be six months and it was really cool. So we, I lived in the back room of this little schoolhouse that was broken down. It had a door. So they gave us a room. Everyone in the village knew we were coming. So they each donated like a fork or a plate or a glass so that we could have a little supplies in our little space. And then every day we'd, we'd wake up in the morning, pick direction and like go walk from farm to farm and go show people stuff and try to help them. Uh, learn how to do some of these things more efficiently and better. It was really cool. That's uh, wild. So I there for six months, and about three months into it, I got malaria, which was an interesting experience. And you know, I had a. I grew up in Southern California, where a lot of people aren't that into medicine and and inoculations and vaccines and all this stuff. And so I grew up without all that stuff and. I was adamantly like, I don't need this. I can meditate and drink some vegetable juice and my body will heal itself and I'm good. Now in a first world developed nation with all kinds of supplies and access to stuff, yeah, you could try that. But when you're in a developing nation with no running water, no electricity, no toilets, <laughs> uh, rampant malaria everywhere, not the best idea in my, my choices in life there. So I chose not to take the malaria, anti-malaria medication, but reasonable cause. My friends who took the anti-malaria medication got malaria while they were there. So I was like, hey, they took it, had crazy dreams, and also got malaria. I didn't take it. I didn't get crazy dreams and also got malaria. <laughs> Right, so it's kind of like the flu. It's kind of like the flu now, right? Do we? You get the flu. I get a flu shot, and you get if you get a flu shot, and you get all this stuff put in you. And the reality is, is it's a fraction of what really could happen. Exactly. 
and some people who get the flu shot still get the flu. Absolutely. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. So I didn't do it. Uh, I got malaria. And the, the next part was just a mistake on my part. It was a stubbornness of being young and, and adamant and passionate about what I believed in. And so the doctor was like, okay, here, take the medicine to get rid of the malaria. I was like, I don't believe in medicine. Mm. That was silly. And so what happened was over the next so many days, weeks, it got worse. And it got to a point where like my lungs started to shut down. I was wheezing. I couldn't see straight. My temperature was skyrocketing. And you know, millions of people die from malaria all the time. So it's not something to mess with. And that was my mistake. Because of my stubbornness, I landed up uh, eventually taking the medicine, having the worst 11 days of my life feeling like I was literally going to die. I had a doctor sit me down to convince me to take the medicine at one point and, and show me my blood. And I had 55,000 parasites per one red blood cell. So I was 20 years old and he sat me down and said, buddy, basically at the rate these double and what they do is lay eggs in your blood cells. When the eggs hatch, it explodes out of the cell and kills the blood cell. Then it goes and feeds on water and soaks up all the water out of your body. So you're immediately dehydrated. And then it goes and lays eggs in all the other blood cells. And eight to 10 hours later, they hatch and kill the cell and repeat the process. Good. And they kill off all your blood cells. And so at the, I had 55,000 parasites per one red blood cell at that moment, which meant he did the calculation in math. And he's like, you basically got about six days left. And I remember at 20 years old, hearing the concept of having six days left and thinking that was not the plan. <laughs> no, not I, at all. I had a plan at 20 years old to just die. And, and all the first thoughts that go through your mind of, if I am going to die in six days, I'd like to see my family again. Then thinking like, I'm sick though. They're never going to let me through a plane flight home sure. when I'm this sick. They're quarantined me. Like, there's no way they'd let me fly into the United States like that. I'm like, that's not going to happen. I'd really, and then all of a sudden the flash of like all the things I ever thought I'd want to accomplish or experience in my life, like getting married, having a family, having a house, starting a business, writing a book, like anything I could ever think of graduating from school, anything I could come up with all of a sudden kind of just flashed through my mind. I was like, wow, there's a possibility. None of that's going to ever happen. Like That sucks. And I just sat down and I remember thinking it through, had a couple phone calls. And then I, I came up with this little thing I had heard of, which was if I only had six days left to live, how would I want to live those days to really feel content if that was it, to feel happy, to feel satisfied, to feel like I had a full life if that's all I ever did. If I only made it to 20 and died, what would I want to do? How would I want to live those days? And, you know, how could I squeeze the most out of every moment of it? How could I really deeply love and connect with the ones that matter to me and everyone around me? You know, could I do anything that would matter beyond my lifetime? If I, my physical presence was no longer, could I have a legacy of some sort? Someone said, I remember hearing it, you die twice. The first time is when you physically die and that's inevitable. It happens to all of us. The second time you die is the very last time your name is ever spoken. Mm. And that is controllable. And I remember thinking, wow, that's interesting. Could I do something that would cause people to remember 
in some way, shape or form that I was around and did something worth remembering, did something good in the world that people would look back and go, wow, I remember that guy. That was really cool. In six days, sick as a dog, I'm assuming, right? I mean, you had to have been physically just really down. I mean, really, were you throwing up or you, you had to be weak. Things were exiting in every way possible out of the body at that point. Oh. Uh, I would try to eat food and I'd crawl to the bathroom because I had vertigo. So I'd stand up, pass out, fall over, wake up face first on the ground, still having to go to the bathroom. And I'd like crawl down a hallway to try to get to the bathroom. Now I was in a city, so there was at least a toilet, but it's not a real great experience in, at that point, you know, 11, what is it? 15 years ago. You know, that part of the world, it's not a great experience, even with the plumbing and toilets, but still an advantage to having no toilet. So I remember being there, throwing up, having diarrhea. I think I lost like 20 or 30 pounds in a week. Like it was, it was, it was bad. I couldn't get any food in. I was massively dehydrated. I wasn't able to move a lot. So my body was going. And at, at that point thinking, you know, what could I do? And some of the things are scientific that you can do that help you get better. Some of them are purely pseudoscience, but my goodness, they help you feel better at least. <laughs> so sure. there's no scientific proof that it works, but you feel better <laughs> right. and, and positive attitude helps kind of stuff. And so I, I did everything between creating a future vision, a compelling vision of the future of something I wanted to try to live for and towards. I created commitments of reasons beyond myself. I remember reading a book called A Man's Search for Meaning where Victor. Oh my God, it's such a good book. And so I created meanings, empowering meanings that said, if I can live through this, it'll prepare me for an amazing future to help people deeply. I remember thinking, you know, I would find a way to continue to contribute through the education and health of people in that part of the world if I could live and find a way through it. I remember just visualizing myself getting healthy and feeling strong and feeling like, myself again and being able to do stuff. I remember mentally rehearsing and visualizing myself graduating school and finding a wife and getting married and having a family. Um, and as all these pieces came together in my mind, I would focus on it every day. I remember imagining, you know, a bright white light coming into my body and going around and healing all the things that needed healing on the inside. And some of that pseudoscience, there's no scientific proof that it works. I did everything I possibly could to try to get as healthy as humanly possible to overcome this malaria. Fast forward 11 days later, it was, it was bad, but I started to feel better. I was like, oh my God, I think it's working. Um, it, it started to pick up traction. I was feeling better. You know, I was skinny. Like I lost all my muscle and weight. And I went from like 225 pounds, I think I was at before the trip around the world. Um, and at that time, I got all the way down to like 185. So let me ask you really, really quick. When you were thinking about the light or the light coming into your body and healing, did you, and I'm pretty certain I know the answer to this, but did you believe that that was going to heal you? Uh, I think it could help. Yeah. I believe it would help. Sure. (laughs) I was looking for anything that could help. And my thought is I'm going to do as much of my part as humanly possible. You know, the rest is up to God and the universe to to do what it needs to do. Um, But, but the parts I can control, I'm certainly going to put in my effort every day. 
And so things I knew that could help, uh, one, 10 minutes a day of watching or, or doing something that makes you laugh, it boosts your immune system, causes oxytocin to release into your body, makes you feel content and happy and alive. I knew exercise would release endorphins and make me feel better. I couldn't exercise or move though, so that was off the table. I knew <laughs> mental rehearsal and visualization of a positive future reward would cause dopamine to flood into my brain and body, which would cause me to feel like taking action of doing something to get healthy and better. Um, I, I knew the, the kind of the Eastern philosophy of healing through belief and healing through that kind of metaphysical channel and prayer. So praying about it every day I did visualizing golden light in entering my body and healing the cells I did. Um, our body is an amazing chemistry set. Any pill we take, the majority of them, all they do is cause more of something our body already makes to be released or it blocks our body from receiving something our body already makes. So a lot of the pills we take do not add something new to our body. They merely stimulate the chemistry set of our body to release more or less of what already exists. Sure. So I had heard this kind of stuff growing up, and I thought, well, wow, what if I could mentally try to stimulate some of those natural existing chemicals and neurotransmitters in my body? And if I can naturally emit the right ones, my body will heal itself. My body will find a way to get better. So all of that in combination with the medicine they were giving me was my way of trying to mentally, emotionally, physically and spiritually, you know, carry myself through this 11 days that just kind of sucked. So really quick, you're, the, the reason I asked, did you believe it is because, uh, you know, I believe, I wholeheartedly believe, wholeheartedly believe that if I, if my thought process is aligned with my head and my heart and that I'll just give you a quick example. Um, you know, I steal prime every morning and through that, the white, white, blue, whatever light, I have healed uh, a back injury that I've had for years because I knew and I focused during that portion of the priming on that particular part of my back. And I swear to God, I have not had a shot since. And that's been a, a year and a half. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Our body is an amazing machine. So part of the golden light concept came from something my mom taught me when I was really little. Which okay. was, it, there was something called color breathing back in the day. And it's a cool book. And it talks about how we can use colors to kind of tap into different parts of our psyche and healing. And so if you closed your eyes and imagined a color of stuff you don't want, the ugly gross ugh, stuff and you can pick whatever color you want that for you means that then you pick a color of beauty and peace and ease and happiness and joy and love and all the things you want you pick a color for that and then what you imagine doing is you imagine breathing in the color that has all the things you want and then you imagine breathing out the color that has all the stuff you don't want anymore and that process it, it's very healing it, there's the, again some of this is pseudoscience some of this is actual science but there's a healing property there where, like you just experienced, you use that light, that visualization, it helped your body relax and heal in a way that you don't need a shot. It's amazing. I use that kind of piece to help my body work through the process of malaria in partnership with the medicine at that point. And, and it did work. It did help me. And again, this was helping 
my mindset feel confident, strong, and have that deep faith that I was going to make it through this because I had reasons. I had visualized the reasons and stimulated my brain. I was practicing doing my part in the healing process beyond just taking a pill or medicine. I was practicing visualizing a purpose in the future, something worth fighting for, worth going through the shitty days for. And it all started to stack up. Made it through those days, got healthy, came home. And then it was kind of a weird moment. I remember getting home, feeling very weak, not a strong version of myself. Uh, lost a ton of weight, lost a ton of muscle, didn't really feel that strong in who I was. And I remember having to piece that back together. I, I had to start eating healthy again and rebuild some of my energy. Um, I had to start just walking and jogging again. I remember I signed up eventually for a half marathon and went and ran it and felt really good. Then I went and signed up for a full marathon and ran it and felt really good. Then I went and signed up for a triathlon eventually and went and ran it and felt really good. And I was like, wow. Okay, cool. I'm starting to feel myself again. Um, and then I, I went back and finished school. And my, my dad and I had an agreement that, and this was a big blessing, but a, an agreement that says, hey, I'll help you through school. And the moment you're done with school, we have an agreement that says you are a grown adult and you're on your own. And so figure it out. That's it. I'll help you through school. As soon as you're done with school, you're a grown adult. You're on your own. Go figure it out. Not the agreement that I thought you were going to say. And so, you know, that, that was our agreement. So he helped me finish school, which is a huge blessing in itself. That's sure. a very expensive school. And so I, I got to graduate with no loans or debt. And then I had to go figure it out. And as most people do, you know, I had a BA in psychology. So, of course, I went into sales because that's how you use a degree nowadays. <laughs> right. True. So true. You go use it for something that had nothing to do with. Right. Um, but initially I went into sales and I, I spent two years doing outside sales. And so office to office, city to city, just selling. And I sucked in the beginning. <laughs> um, I came up with philosophy later where I'm like, you know, I think most people set themselves up for failure because they, they set the wrong expectations in the beginning. Like we think we're going to pick up a tennis racket and be freaking Venus Williams or Andre Agassi or something. And it's like, no, you're going to pick up that racket. 90% of the time you're going to suck. Like yeah. you're just going to be flat out horrible. And if you expect that you pick up the racket, you can't even hit the ball and you're like, well, that's normal. What's next? <laughs> so true. Like, how do I get better? And, and you're like, okay, I'm going to suck at it in the beginning. And, if I stick around long enough, I'll become okay. Like if you, if you have eight weeks of tennis lessons, you're probably okay. Like you can get the ball over the net kind of stuff, but you have no chance at a pro. Like you will get your ass kicked if you try to take on someone who's a professional. You know, if you have eight years of tennis, you might be really good. But for most people, you're still not going to be a professional. But if you put enough effort in, and this is where it stops being the amount of time, starts being the amount of practice and the intensity of the practice. If you put enough intense practice in, maybe in that same eight years, you do become a pro and you become extraordinary at it, you become world-class at it. And so that same philosophy, I looked at sales and I'm like, I just straight up sucked in the beginning. I remember driving four and a half hours to my first office meeting, giving the presentation, asking how many people would like to buy. Everyone raised their hand. I passed out the order forms and you know, some ladies stood up and said, caravan. And I had no clue what that meant. But every real estate agent in the office stood up, turned around, and walked out the back door 
none of them handed me a completed order form. And I remember being like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> Where did all my sales go? <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I just had 40 sales and I'm pretty sure all 40 sales are gone. And I do not know what this devil word of caravan meant, but it, all I know is that word steals my sales. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and that is just lack of experience. Again, kind of suck in the beginning at something. So figured it out. Caravan meant they're going to go see the properties that are newly listed for the office that they're all going to help sell. Figured out I had to ask if there was caravan before the meeting so that I knew to finish 10 minutes early so people could finish filling out the form prior to caravan in the future. Note to self, right. a little lesson learned in the beginning with lack of experience. And, and eventually I got better. Um, and, you know, over the next two years, I went through New York, Boston, Tampa, uh, Santa Ana, Los Angeles, we did Orange County, Atlanta, all within, you know, a couple of years there. And I did over probably 800 and something presentations in offices presenting and selling. And so that was a significant amount of practice of speaking, training and selling people. And I, I became pretty good at sales, not world-class. What were you selling? Uh, I was selling tickets to go see my dad's seminars at that time. Ah, you know why? The reason I asked that question is because I almost took the same job. Mm -hmm. And so when you started talking about the city to city and I was like, he's got to be talking about, I can't remember the name of the position now, but he's got to be talking about that. And I didn't take it because I'm married and I've got a kid and I've got a house. And like, it's not a job for somebody that's married with a kid in the house. No. It's a single man or woman's job who you travel and and it's a lot of fun. You meet a lot of cool people. Uh, You feel really important. (laughs) You're a top trainer around the country kind of stuff. Uh, But eventually I I got good at two things. I got great at training people. I got really good at presenting in in any circumstance. And I got on the, you know, suck at it. You're okay. You're pretty good and you're world-class. I got pretty good at sales. I never hit world-class, but I got pretty good. And that was enough that I needed. Um, prior to that, while I was in school, I had been trained and certified in, as a coach. And I had been coaching before that. And so when I got off the road from sales, I went back into coaching. And I picked up three jobs. I remember I was in coaching. I was in the inside sales team so that when I wasn't on a call, I could be dialing and trying to sell stuff to make some extra money. And then I went and also worked at the, the warehouse a few days a week, just you know, packing boxes kind of stuff. Sure. And just, I had three jobs and I moved back to San Diego. Fun move story. I remember I was on the plane and as it, before it took off, I text like five friends in San Diego said, Hey, does anyone have a room for rent? When I landed, one of them had texted back and said, ah, one of our roommates is moving out. We'll have a room in like a week. I was like, cool. Can, how much can I see it? <laughs> she said, sure. When do you want to come by? It was 10 o'clock at night on the Thursday. And I was like, how about 20 minutes she's like okay question mark i was like what's the address she gave me the address it was in hillcrest right up the hill from the airport in san diego got in my car drove up the hill got a rental car drove up the hill knocked on the door my friend bonnie opened the door and was like yeah hey nice to see you like haven't seen you in a while come on in um so she's like the roommate's in that room she's finished she's a grad student she'll be moving out as soon as she graduates in like a couple weeks you can have it she goes but if you need something sooner we have the den she's like it doesn't have a door it has a curtain but you know you could live in the den if you want for right now. I'm like, how much? Pretty sure she just made this number up. She's like 500 bucks a month. 
like, okay. And she's like, what? I'm like, I'll take it. She's like, when do you want to move in? I'm like, I'll go get my bag. <laughs> <laughs> I walked Welcome. out the front door, grabbed my bag out of the car, dragged it inside. And she just looked at me. She's like, okay. And I looked over at the fireplace in the living room and there was a mattress of someone else who was moving out. And I was like, can I borrow that for tonight <laughs> just to use? And she's like, yeah, I guess. Dragged it across the room, put it in the den, literally emptied my suitcase on top of the mattress and then took a sweatshirt and stuffed some like clothes inside the sweatshirt to make a pillow. And then I burrowed under the clothes, laid on the pillow. And I was like, there we go. And I fell asleep. My well, favorite little, thing that happened in the morning. Little, Jared, I heard, little, I heard little, coming down the hallway, like clack, 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 clack. I heard the front door open, which was right outside the curtain. I heard clack, clack, clack backwards. And then I heard my, her name's Valerie, but she's now a friend of mine. Back then, my brand new roommate that I did not know. And her, her, she turned around and said, who's the homeless guy in the den? <laughs> and I, I remember thinking about it. And thinking, like, I kind of look like a homeless guy who snuck into the den. You were kind of homeless, actually. There's a mattress on the ground, <laughs> a pile of clothes, and a guy under the clothes sleeping. Like, that looks like a homeless dude. And I just remember, I remember half hearing that in the back. Like, just, I was half awake and I heard that and just kind of smiled and laughed. <laughs> like, that's funny. And then she went to work. And we later became very, very good friends just in life. Um, that was kind of how I moved in. And so from that little room with a curtain, I remember I went and set up a desk. I set up an Ikea closet because it didn't have a closet. I put a bed in there and a dresser and I started my own coaching practice. So my own coaching little business on the side in there. And I lived there and it was 500 bucks a month rent to start off, which is expensive for most of the country, but for San Diego, that's inexpensive. Yeah, I would, that's, so that would probably be okay for North Carolina, probably okay. But San Diego, yeah, I mean, that would be extremely cheap. So one bedroom in San Diego right now is usually about 15 to 1600, 1200 to 1600 bucks a month for a decent one bedroom. That's so insane. 500 bucks a month is significant at that stage of my life for me out of my own bank account, but yeah. it only gets you the front end of a house in this case. <laughs> Well, and, but if you think about where you just had come from and seeing what you had seen and experienced what you had experienced, shit, that then doesn't sound so bad. No, it was more than enough. It was yeah. Great. And so that, those are things that had kind of reset. And it was just something inside me. We were like, great, that's all I need to get started. So I remember I set up my little business in there. I put up a website, which wasn't that great. Uh, I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. So I just kind of created it myself. I learned my color palette of how to design things is not the best in the world, but I tried <laughs> at least I put the effort in. And with that effort, I used my own. So I had at that point, probably one, two, three, four, 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 five, maybe six years of coaching experience where I had been coaching people. So I had experience. I wasn't just decided to be a life coach one day. Like I had six years experience of working for a bigger company and tr getting trained in 250 hours of training. So I had the experience and the know-how and the confidence there. I had two years of outside sales. So I knew how to sell, um, put those two things together. And I, I, I generated a hundred thousand dollars in revenue in eight months in my new little coaching business. And I was like, well, 24 years old, 
I just made a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. My overhead was maybe a couple thousand dollars a month. At most. And yeah, I felt like I was literally just killing it. <laughs> I'm like, this is great. Like, wow, if I can do this, what else could I do? Now sure. I learned a few things where instead of just okay, now I have enough money. I'm going to go get an apartment five times the size for my own and deck it out and buy a new car and all this jazz. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Someone told me to save up at least three months of expenses in cash. That way, if anything happened, I'd have at least three months to float myself to make it through any challenge. So I remember I identified an apartment I wanted to move to down on the beach in San Diego, which I thought would be cool. And it was, I think, $1,500 a month. And so I said, okay, I need at least $4,500 plus the car plus the this plus the that. And I came up with a number. I was like, okay, great. I'm going to stay in this little room until I have at least three to six months of that bigger number saved in cash before moving there. So I saved, 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 eventually had it. And then I moved. I moved from that little den to a, a little two bedroom apartment by myself on the beach, right down in Mission Bay in San Diego. And it was awesome. I lived literally steps from the ocean. I had the ocean on one side, the bay on the other. Woke up every day and walked along the ocean, did my, my morning routine. And it was a very cool experience to have that kind of transition. And from there, I, I you know, built my company. And, and now we've been able to really grow. We've been in business. So I've been coaching now for over 16 years. And I've had 10 years of having my own coaching business. Really, the first half of those 10 years, so five of that was a coaching practice where it was me just coaching people one-on-one. -on -one. It was not a business. And then in the past previous five years, we, we started to learn about business. So I've been studying my own personal PhD program on the topic of business for about six years now. And throughout this six years process, I've learned how to build an actual business, how to hire people, how to create systems and processes, how to organize um, marketing and hire the marketing staff and get them to run ads for us and drive traffic and how to convert traffic over in the leads and applications, how to take applications and leads and turn them over to our sales team, have our sales team turn those into new business and send it over to our team to fulfill on and how to create a fulfillment center and like all the business of business I've been studying and practicing now for six years and we're getting pretty good. Um, you know, we've done millions of dollars in sales and we have clients in 101 countries around the world actively learning from us right this moment. Um, very cool. It's very, very cool. That's amazing. And what I think is so interesting, because I really didn't know, uh, I didn't know if you, I, I, I didn't know about the agreement after high school, I mean, after college, I didn't know that. I didn't know how much or how little, you know, you have been helped with, you know, by, by, your, by your dad or, or whatever. But it sounds like to me, and this is actually not shocking to me, that 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 agreement was made and and you had to go out and and make this on your own which you know for everybody listening if you've ever had the question of you know well was this handed to Jarek it wasn't it wasn't handed to you at all um i'm sure i'm sure the fact of, of the, maybe your name had helped you some but sure. you had to figure it out you had to figure it out well the upside and downside of that the upside was it certainly helped there were people that found me and, and tracked me down because I was Tony's son. Um, and it helped where people were like, oh, you're Tony's son. Here, let's do something. 
Uh, and then it became a nuisance and, and it made it difficult because they wanted to do a podcast with me and title it, you know, Tony Robbins 2.0, which I would immediately get emails and calls from Tony's legal team saying, Hey, this is, you can't do this. This like his name is trademarked. You cannot use it to drive business in any way, shape or form. And it, it's it, their trademark and patented. Like, even though you're his kid, you can't do it. It's illegal. And we can sue you for it. We can shut it down. I was like, oh, not cool. <laughs> like, <shit. laughs> can you and imagine getting beginning... a letter from his legal team saying, hey, Derek, you're getting sued? <laughs> yeah, I, I hope they probably wouldn't sue me. I would but they're pretty aggressive towards anyone else. Um, and so, you know, it became a nuisance in itself where people would try to use me to access his brand to grow their business. And so they're not trying to really work with me. They're trying to leverage or leech off of his brand without having to actually be in a position where Tony or his team would want to do business with them. Right. So they never got good enough to have him to want to do business with them. And so instead they're trying to find a loophole through me to still access what Tony's team spends $50 million a year on building his brand and marketing. So sure. that's not fair and that's not cool at all. No. So that was something I had to learn how to navigate. And it was a bumpy road in the beginning because I didn't see why I couldn't. It's my name too. Right. Uh, <laughs> sure. But over, over time, we figured that out and we, you know, we just got really clear. Something that helped open some doors and eyes for me was the industry, personal development, self-help industry, which includes weight loss, had, as of a couple of years ago, had gotten to about 300 million or 400 million people around the world. And I was like, wow, that's a ton of people. Yeah. But if I think, I don't know what the population is right now. Let me Google it real quick. I think it's 8 billion or seven and a half billion. Seven, it's between seven and eight for sure. Population. Let's see where we're at. And it cut out when you said you seven, said seven point seven billion. Okay. So if we if we take seven point seven billion and we minus four hundred thousand, that leaves seven point three no six point what is it? Six point three? Seven point three. Seven point three billion people who have never heard of any of this material. Wow. And I, I was thinking, wow. That's shit. a lot of people. Why would I spend my time going after the 400 million people who already know this stuff exists, like it, love it, listen to it, regularly participate, when I could go after the 7. Point, what is it, 7.3 billion people that have no clue this stuff even exists. They've never heard of it. Right. They've never read a personal development book. They've never listened to anything like this. They've never... This knowledge is literally like, wow, life-changing experiences for them. So how did you target those? I mean, okay, so just give me an example of what that ideal client would look like. What, what? So this is different. I split my business in half, okay. and there was two things we were targeting. One, the purpose side of our business, to reach the people that need it most at the moment they need it with the message they need. Okay. I don't know who they are, where they are, or what they need, but every day we push out good thoughts in hopes to find them at the moment they need it most. Okay. And so that's positive quotes, inspirational videos, uh, little thoughts, things like, you know, most people want to be a sunshine, the sunshine on someone's brightest day. 
but maybe you could be the moonlight in someone's darkest hour. Ooh, that's nice. And I was like, what? Well, a lot of people want to go pet talk someone who's already happy, but why not showing up in someone's life when they're really hurting and reminding them that there's still hope? Gosh, it's so powerful. They're like, that's really important. And that's more than just a cool little meme or, or quote. How do we turn that into something someone could use? So then we type steps underneath it and say, if you're in your darkest hour, here's a few steps on how to get back to your best self. One, go take a three-minute ice-cold shower. It'll reset your nervous system. It'll clear your mind of all the negativity, and it'll get you to a place that's kind of a blank slate. Two, uh, write down 10 things you're grateful for. And even if you can't think of anything, make up 10 that sometime in your life was something you could have been grateful for back then or something you might be grateful for in the future. Come up with that. Three, set a goal. Come up with a target, something to aim for, something to work towards, something that's worth putting in effort for. Three, realize you're going to suck at whatever you're going to about to try to do. Like you're literally going to suck at it. You'd be horrible at it in the beginning, but due to effort and consistency, eventually you'll become okay. Then you'll become pretty good. And eventually if you keep doing it, you can become world-class. Follow those four steps, put in the effort and dig yourself out of this hole. P.S. Click the link below if you want to read the story of someone who's overcome great, crazy triumph and been successful in their life as inspiration for you yourself. So we take stuff like that and we toss it out into the world. And every single day from around the world, we get little messages and notes from people that said, I needed this. Thanks. Um, the most heart touching ones for me, one of them came in the form of a handwritten letter from a soldier that was deployed overseas. And in the letter, she goes, Mr. Robbins, uh, I'm, I'm a soldier, airman. I was deployed overseas. I came home, had horrible PTSD. For the last couple of weeks, every night I've had my firearm in my mouth wanting to pull the trigger because I can't imagine having to live this way anymore. Someone gave me a copy of your book and I read it and I just wanted to say thank you. It reminded me of the reason why I want to keep living. And I remember sitting down at that moment and saying, if that's all our business ever did was got to that one person at that one moment, we were wildly successful as a company. Absolutely. That's, it. that's all we needed to do. And if we could do that every day, my goodness, we're doing what we're made to be doing. And that's 100%. what we do every day as a company. Wow. Now, that doesn't drive a whole lot of revenue. <laughs> so for the last six years, take off the purpose hat, put on the business hat. I've been studying the business of business. And the business of business is exactly the same in every type of business you can imagine. Doesn't matter if it's doing $50 billion a year or $2 million a year or $100,000 a year. Business is the same stuff when you take the hood, open it up, and look at the engine of what's going on. So in studying the business of business, we sat down, we combed through and said, you know, what's the most profitable thing we do as a company that makes the biggest impact and the most profit, creates the happiest customers and the most profit. We correlated all these different things together. We figured out there are certain things we do that are highly profitable and deliver absolute world-class results and experiences for our clients. So great, we're going to triple down on those. Those are going to be the business, the revenue generation and profit generation of our business. And then the purpose of our business, all the money we make from that allows us to spend time doing the good stuff to make a difference in people's lives. And so we use one as an engine to generate the revenue and income necessary to pay for and offset the cost of the other that makes a wild difference in the world. So we have clients, I have personal clients that I work with. They pay me anywhere between you know, 2,500 bucks a month to 5,000 bucks a month usually. And we work on optimizing their business, their health, nutrition, their mindset, track their sleep. We track how well they can clear their mind every day. We track how to keep them at their absolute best mentally, emotionally, physically. 
and we tra- and we help them scale and grow and multiply their businesses. From that money, uh, it allows us to then reinvest in our team to then have our team producing all this cool content every day that can go out and really serve people in a really meaningful and impactful way. And so we've built a system and business around these kind of concepts and, and it's done really well. It's allowed us to have clients, active clients learning from us right now in 101 plus countries around the world, allowed us to make millions of dollars as, as a you know, revenue and be highly profitable in that process as well. And it's, it's very cool. One of my favorite pieces, it's also because when I set it up, freedom was one of my highest values. I wanted to make sure I could always run this business from anywhere in the world via the laptop, the internet, and the cell phone. That was the goal. That's how I started in the front den with a laptop, the internet, and the cell phone. <laughs> and I said, that's how I want to keep it. I want to be able to do that just like that for the rest of my life. I don't want to have to have an office. I don't want to have to have some place I have to go to every day. I literally want to be able to do it from everywhere. And knock on wood, we have been able to. I've run our business from a cruise ship off the coast of Monte Carlo. I've run our business. Um, we took a 25-day, 10-country cruise through Central and South America, and I ran my business from there the whole time. We successfully ran our business while living in Costa Rica, living in Mallorca, Spain for three weeks this summer, lived in Tampa, lived in Miami, lived in San Diego. We lived in Sausalito outside of San Francisco running our business. Right now, we just, we're just in the process of moving to Puerto Rico. It's why my office isn't set up yet. Uh, but we're going to move our base down here in Rincon, live around on the beach, which is pretty cool. The ocean's right outside behind me here. And so we've been able to do this and grow our team. You know, we have a handful of sales guys and coaches that work for us now. We have students all over the world. We have our admin team. So we've been able to successfully grow and scale. And, and you know, we're running it instead of a startup with investments, we're running it as a traditional business. And we try to stay lean, highly profitable in the process of doing so. Well, moving to Puerto Rico is definitely going to help the bottom line because the tax bracket is incredible. There is no tax, correct? Uh, there's a 4% corporate tax and then a 33% tax on what you pay yourself. And there's, there's a non-mandatory salary you're supposed to pay yourself, but okay. it's highly recommended um, that you pay yourself a normal and standard salary. So let's say I pay myself $100,000 a year, I'm going to have to pay 33% local tax on that 100000 and then 4% on all the corporation's income. Past that, there, there's no tax. I would say it's a pretty good deal, right? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, it depends on, I suppose, how, how much you pay yourself, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I can't legally advise on that piece. Of but, course not. Um, from all the research I've done, it's, it can be extremely lucrative if done properly. Um, I've also, through my research, ran across a ton of people who are doing it improperly and at some point are going to get a big old kick in the face. Yeah. Um, you have to properly follow the laws and rules. And as long as you follow them properly, there's a beautiful incentive. And the basis of the incentive is to get people to reinvest here in Puerto Rico and help bring the life back to life here. And we're planning on doing that. You know, I'm looking forward to investing in other businesses here. I think it'd be fun to probably buy a couple businesses here and help optimize them and you know resell them or just keep them um we're going to put up some rental properties here and, and do that piece as well so there, there's lots of opportunity i see here the moving company that helped us move down here they did a 1200 moves from miami to puerto rico in the last 12 months so almost a thousand moves a month they helped make happen just from miami to puerto rico this year that's fantastic 
So it's, I mean, it's, Puerto Rico needs it of all places. They need it so bad. So that's it's, that's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. We're very excited to be here. I bet. I bet. So what do you have planned for, uh, you know, we're, we're at the end of the year. So do you have any, are you, are you speaking anywhere else this year? No, we've cleared our calendar for the rest of the year. Um, my wife is 10 or 11 weeks pregnant. Oh my so, goodness. Congratulations. I did not thank know that. You. We are clearing stuff off the calendar rapidly. Um, I'm saying no to as many things as possible right now. And one of my, I could say heroes, I don't know much more than the few things I do know about him, but the few things I do know about him elevated his status in my mind very quickly. Uh, Garth Brooks, there was a story I read about him where he was selling out stadiums in in concerts. And when his kids were old enough that they needed their dad to be full-time at home, he shut down. And he says, you know what? My kids needing the father is more important than me filling a stadium to sing to people. So shut it down and I'm going to go home and be dead. And that, that's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, my dad didn't have the opportunity necessarily to do that. He was still building his career at the time when I was growing up. And I think we're in a position, if we can optimize a few more parts of our business quickly, that we'll be in a position where I can shut down a, a chunk of our business for a couple of years here and spend a lot of time just being dead, which is high on my list. I love that, man. That's super cool. Super cool, Derek. Super cool. So do you know what you're having yet or is it too early? I, I don't know. It's going to be a child. Uh, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> a healthy, beautiful little child is what we're aiming for. That'll come out of there. Yeah. Uh, I d- we don't know if we want to find out the, the sex of it yet. We might just wait and see if it's a surprise when it arrives. Uh, we don't know yet. We have checked that that scan is coming up uh, next week. We're going to fly back to Miami and go do the scan. That makes sense. 12, 12, 12, 12th week mark, right? Yeah. So, yeah, very cool, Jarek. Man, that's fantastic. I'm super, super, super thankful that you took the time today to do this, and I'll, I'll just say this, you know, the only reason this call happened today is because I made a decision to reach out and and ask Jarek after, you know, we've built somewhat of a relationship uh, just via social and talking because of your, your mother, which I'm sorry to hear that she passed, um, in Asheville, which is in North Carolina, which is where I live, as most listeners know. Um, but I guess the whole reason I'm bringing that up is, is that when you think you can do something, if you think you can do it, you can do it. If you don't think you can do it, that's exactly what's going to happen. True. So thank you so much, Jarek. I appreciate it. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. You're so very welcome. And, And hopefully this is useful for people. Hopefully something in my story can inspire them or excite them or, you know, hopefully they go set up a business in the front end of a house and make six figures in eight months and kick off their career, whatever they want to do. Um, I, you know, I hope there's something in there that can be useful for people and, and they can take it and use it. And my simple philosophy I always use is learn it, live it, give it. So anything you want to do in life, no matter what it is, you want to be a doctor, you want to travel to the moon, you want to start a business, you want to, you know, become a, a father or mother. First step is learn. 
please learn about it. There's a lot of people who go start stuff and didn't take the first step. They didn't learn about it. They just accidentally landed up in it. Uh, if you're already halfway in the process, that's okay. Learn about it. <laughs> Triple down on the study and research of it. Buy some books on it. Listen to some courses on it. Find a mentor. Find a teacher. Take a class. Take a course. YouTube it. Like Just learn as much as you possibly can about whatever it is you want to do. As you're learning it, something I put together, I call it my personal PhD program. So I took the topic of love and relationships, and for the past 11 years, I've been studying, researching, and applying everything I get my hands on as far as love and relationships. I'm level one certified in Gottman Marriage and Family Therapy. I don't know, you paused on me there. to have a happy, healthy, loving, you know, thriving relationship, and I'm practicing it with my wife. Step two, so learn it. Step two is live it. You got to apply what you learn. Uh, lots of people go to, you know, take a class, read a book, and then immediately start trying to teach it on Instagram to someone else. But, but, but live it, apply it. Like take what you learn and put it to practice. Remember, you're going to suck in the beginning, then you become okay, then you become, you know, pretty good, and eventually you become great at it. But practice what you learn. Practice all that material you're soaking up and learning and put it to work. See what works for you and what doesn't. And just keep applying it till you become great at it. And then once you become really great at it and you have that experience, pay it forward. Give it. So learn it, live it, give it is the third step. Pay it forward and help other people so that you have more people to share this with and more people to help and experience life with and have fun with. And so, you know, the two categories I'm still, I'm finishing off my personal PhD in relationships for the past 11 years now. And then I'm six years into my personal PhD program, meaning all the books and courses and mentors and teachers and classes and lessons and application on business. And so there's two I've been working on so far for the past 11 years. And, and it's, it's really paid dividends. It's amazing. My wife and I have a beautiful, thriving relationship together because of the effort we put in every single day to make it that way. And all the material we've learned and studied and practiced together. Uh, we have a thriving business, thank goodness, knock on wood, because we're six years into a study, research, and application program of books, mentors, teachers, coaches, classes. When I met my wife, she was in her, her working on her MBA at San Diego State University, so she was already ahead of me in that place. But since we've been together for six years now, we've been taking courses and classes and books and research and practice and application, and we're doing really well. Um, this last year, I think we're currently at 45% growth year to date. We made more profit in the first four months of this year, the first quarter of this year than the entire last year combined. Wow. Um, and, and that's just, it's applications, learning what it takes, fully applying it. And then we have clients that we share it with and help them do the same in their own way. And so by taking that little three-step process, learn it, live it, give it. I think it's a neat philosophy that's helped me really well in life. And I think it helps a lot of people too, when they put it into practice. Yeah. Cause you can soak up all the knowledge you want. You know, you can go and read a hundred books, but if you don't do anything with the knowledge that you get from the books, there's no point in reading the books unless you just enjoy reading books. Yeah. And, and so the key is, some people ask, like, why 12 years? Why all that time put into one topic? Warren, Warren Buffett says knowledge compounds. So just like compound interest, there's compound knowledge. 
Meaning if you keep putting the information in again and again and again and again, all of a sudden your brain starts to realize and, and thread through what works and what doesn't, what's useful and what's not, how to apply it. You'll see it from seven different angles, from seven different authors or teachers, and eventually it starts to click and you just go, ah, I literally know how to do this now. Um, once you know how to do it, first step is you're an apprentice. You know how to make a horseshoe. doesn't mean you're a master blacksmith. You're an apprentice. <laughs> like now go find a master blacksmith to work under and hone your craft. So as you're studying and learning, like would you want the doctor who just aced his exam but never once has seen an actual patient? No. Absolutely. You want the one who's like done 50,000 surgeries. Like, exactly. exactly. You want the dude who's well-versed. And, and so it doesn't mean that doctor can't help you, but he has a lot of theory and not a lot of practice. And so why you go work under somebody as an understudy or an apprentice is to get the practice, to put in the work, to put in the effort, to put in the time, to really become a master of the craft. Over a few years of that kind of practice and honing your craft, eventually you become a master of the craft. You're a master craftsman. You're a black belt in, in martial arts. You're, you know, you're really truly a master of that craft. And at that point, break off on your own and go do it. I spent six years working under another company in coaching before I decided to go try it on my own. And when I started as my own, I was not a master world-class coach. I was a six-year suck, okay, pretty good, pretty good coach. I was not the best in the world. Now, um, you know, I, I was really privileged. A friend and client of mine, we were in Aspen going snowboarding, and someone asked me what I did. And I said, oh, you know, I work with business owners, help them grow their business, help them be happy, healthy, strong, and fulfilled, avoid heart attack, divorce, and bankruptcy. And he's like, oh, that's nice. And my friend turned to him and she goes, I don't think you understand. He's literally one of the best in the world at what he does. And I remember kind of smiling and thinking, I would never say that. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm that good. I work hard at it. I try to be that good. I don't like, I don't know if there's someone with a clipboard who gets to decide who's that good or not, but it was a humbling and exciting moment to hear someone say that yeah. and think, wow, after 11 years or at this point for coaching 16 years of one-on-one -on -one coaching, there's the possibility that someone else would look at you and go, wow, you're really one of the best in the world at what you do. You're, you're magnificent at that. And it's a humbling moment to just think, huh, wow, 16 years of practice can kind of get you into the opportunity to have that kind of title or that kind of experience. That's and it's tremendous. not self-proclaimed. I right. still don't say that about myself. I think it's the funky thing to say out loud. But it's really cool to hear from a friend and a client where they're like, no, he's literally one of the best in the world. I'm like, really? <laughs> cool. Yeah, you like, would never say that. <laughs> I don't know. But it's one of those things. Um, you know, there's, there's a fun quote from Kevin Hart. He says, everyone wants to be famous. No one wants to put in the work. And I think right now at this point in history, everyone's trying to be an expert. No one wants to be an apprentice. No one wants to put in the work to actually become a master of their craft. They just want to call themselves a master of craft. Right. Problem is, if you went to a doctor who was your heart surgeon who just put heart surgeon on the outside of a building one day. Cause he decided to be a heart surgeon. You're going to die. Yeah, most likely. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who are setting their clients up for failure 
because they're just slapping titles on the outside of a building and calling themselves a master whatever. And I think clients have a lot more respect for you when you say, listen, here's, I'm, I'm, one, I'm six months into this practice <laughs> or I'm 16 years into this practice. I've been honing my craft for 16 years. Um, some people would consider me extremely good. Some people would consider me one of the best. Some people would consider me pretty good, but I'm somewhere in that range. I'm a, I'm a you know, at a 10, probably an eight, nine or 10 level coach. And I'd love the opportunity to work with you. And if you're cool with that, I'm cool with that. And let's do something about this. Yeah. That kind of statement is very accurate and true, but that's not what people want to say nowadays. You go to people's websites and it's like the grand master of the universe, the ultimate supreme leader of awesomeness because I read three books on topic. That's so true. I get that internet marketers has convinced us that's the way to do it. But when you talk to people who've really done it and not just say they do it, most of them just fell in love with the process of learning how to be great at it. And when you can fall in love with the process of learning how to be great, you can become comfortable enough in your own skin to be honest with people about what stage you're really at. You say, Hey, you know, if I've been roofing for six months, I'll tell you, I've been roofing for six months. I'm not a master roofer but I'll come and give you a good deal and give you one hell of a roof. And I'll tell you this, if anything ever goes wrong with that roof, call me and I will fix it for free. You'll get a lot of roofing jobs. No question but about if it. You show up and tell people you're a master roofer. And all of a sudden three days later, when it rains, there's leaks in their house. You're going to get a pretty shitty Yelp review. Yes, you are. And that's not going to be good for your business at no, all. It'll put you out of business in a heartbeat. And so that honesty and integrity piece, I think is starting to come back. It seems like it which is a neat thing. Uh, one of my friends said the internet is starting to make the world into that small town again, because everyone can instantly find out what's real and what's not about. Them. So, and true. so if you know, when people try to front and bullshit people, eventually it catches up real quick nowadays. Agreed. And it's not eventually anymore. It's right there. And so the ability to be consistent and put in the work and put in the effort and be honest and integrity starts to play a big role again. 100%. I took, yeah, dude, I totally agree with you. It's like people, you see people that take a picture with a Ferrari in front of, they're standing in front of a Ferrari and that's the only picture of them in front of the Ferrari. And you're like, really? It's like, but, but why? Because you're going to, you're going to be found out. Like it just save yourself the humility, the, hu not humility. That, that's completely the wrong word. The humiliation you know, I, I don't, I don't understand it, but whatever, you know, to each their own. And I, I love, I love the way you're doing things, dude. I love, love, love it. So, um, and again, congratulations on the baby. I just, I, 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 like I said, I, I follow a lot of your stuff and the last thing I'll say, I'll say it one more time. The thing in Germany was just incredible the way you walked people through that it was I mean I, I and I you know I think I even told you like when I watched it I bawled I literally bawled and it touched my heart so much so thank you I really appreciate that I really do and um if you're ever in North Carolina my wife still said she'll be happy to take pictures of you and your lovely wife so thank you Jared I really appreciate it um, 
I think uh, you could tell everybody where they can find you in case they don't know who you are, which I'm pretty sure that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Google me. It's J-I-R-E-K-R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com. Uh, go to my website, JerickRobbins.com. Tons of free content there. If you're someone who's interested in becoming a coach yourself and you want to go through that study and, and practice, uh, you can go to performancecoachuniversity.com. We have an online training program there for new coaches. If you're a business owner and you want to grow and work on scaling your business and you're looking for a coach, reach out to us. We'd be really good at that. Um, we're some of the best at helping people really master how to grow their business. Uh, my personal clients are 35 to 45 year old, 90% male entrepreneurs and business owners. If you're one of those, reach out to me. I'll show you how we can help. And you know, for everyone who's listening, follow me on Instagram. It's the easy place where we push out content every single day. And my hope is that whatever it is you need, uh, will find its way to you through our channel every day when we push out good thoughts and, and hope to find people at the moment they need it most. For sure. All right, my man. I appreciate it, Jarek. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon, okay? So very welcome. Thank you. I want to thank you again for tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. If you have not already subscribed, please do. And look, if you really enjoyed today's episode, email me at SuccessfulLifePodcast at gmail.com and tell me what it was you enjoyed. And if there's somebody that you want me to bring on, then email me about that and tell me who it is and I'll make sure it happens. So, you know, leave us a review, tell a friend and until next time, folks. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Successful Life Podcast. We hope today's insights have ignited your passion and provided tools to shape your leadership journey. Remember, greatness is a journey, not a destination. Continue your pursuit by exploring more resources and insights over at CoreyBarrier.com. Until next time, keep leading, keep learning, and keep striving for excellence. Stay inspired and see you on the next episode.